Hey there. Before we get started, we need your help. It's the end of summer and schools across the country are starting back up. And we're about to head into a cooler season with more indoor time. But the pandemic, it's still part of our lives. And many parents are saying they don't know how to make the best decisions for their children, especially if they're too young to be vaccinated. So if you're a parent or a caregiver, we want to hear what questions you have that haven't been answered yet. Are you wondering about socializing between vaccinated and unvaccinated kids? Visiting family? School concerns? What questions are on your mind as we head into fall? Record your question as a voice memo and send it to applenewstoday at apple.com. Remember to tell us your name and where you are and try to keep it to under a minute. We might use your question in an upcoming episode. And thanks. Good morning. It's Wednesday, September 1st. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. A Texas law banning abortions at six weeks of pregnancy is now in effect. Abortion providers filed emergency requests to stop the law, but the U.S. Supreme Court did not block it from going into effect. CNN's legal analyst calls this the tightest abortion restriction since Roe v. Wade. Six weeks is often too soon for someone to realize they're pregnant. This is a pivotal time for abortion law in the U.S. After Justice Amy Coney Barrett replaced Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the conservative wing of the court gained an additional vote. Now all sides of the abortion debate are following the court's moves. In its upcoming term, the Supreme Court is set to rule on a Mississippi law that bars most abortions at 15 weeks. CNN's Supreme Court reporter explains that the Texas law has an unusual design in that it prevents government officials from directly enforcing it. Instead, it allows private citizens to sue anyone who helps someone get an abortion in violation of the ban. That's a move that could make the law harder to challenge. And the definition of anyone could be vast. Opponents of the law argue even someone who drives a friend to a clinic to get an abortion or someone who helps pay the bill could face a lawsuit. Hours before the ban became law, one Texas clinic reported its waiting room was full and that it was providing abortions until midnight. George Floyd's murder by a Minneapolis police officer sparked a national reckoning about systemic racism, not just in policing, but also housing, banking, healthcare, and education. In the months following Floyd's death, U.S. corporations pledged billions of dollars toward racial justice. Tracy Jan is a race and economics reporter for The Washington Post. She spent the last few months figuring out what happened to all that money corporations pledged and whether they're spending matched their words. Of the nearly $50 billion in racial justice commitments in total that corporations made, and this was an unprecedented amount, only a tiny, tiny fraction, $70 million, went towards criminal justice reform, the very cause that sent millions of Americans into the streets in protest after Floyd was killed. Where did most of the money go if it didn't go to criminal justice? So the... Grants that were dispersed, it was only $4.2 billion out of the nearly $50 billion. That actually represents less than 1% of their net income earned last year. 
More than 90% of the nearly $50 billion were actually in the form of loans and investments. So things that corporations could stand to profit from. They're not necessarily bad. It's just not charity. It's not philanthropy. And the vast majority of the pledges were towards economic equality. And that can take various forms, whether it's increasing opportunities for homeownership, entrepreneurship, and education. What are the big Wall Street banks doing about these issues? So J.P. Morgan Chase has actually done something really interesting. There's something called a special purpose credit program that the feds allow banks to create. If your normal lending practices result in racial disparities, you can actually create special credit programs to target Black borrowers or whatever disadvantaged group. And to their credit, most banks aren't doing this because they um, don't want to be accused of reverse discrimination. But J.P. Morgan has started this program as a result of George Floyd's murder and all of the racial reckoning that's going on in this country. And they're offering grants of $5,000 to home buyers who are buying homes in Black or Latino neighborhoods. The problem, though, is that these grants are targeting the neighborhoods. They're not targeting the race of the borrower. So some critics are worried that this could lead to increased gentrification. So what kind of resources are big corporations putting behind the issues of mass incarceration and police reform? Once you are wrapped up in the criminal justice system because of disproportionate policing in your neighborhood, I mean, you could be charged with crimes, whether you did them or not, that someone who's white in a middle-class neighborhood doing the same thing would never be charged with, right? So you have this disproportionate effect on your criminal record. And then when you come out, let's say you did do the crime and you served your time, then you come out, you're paying for it over and over again, whether you can get a job. That becomes a, a check mark on your history that companies oftentimes just won't even look at you because you have to check the box, right? So a lot of companies now, including JP Morgan, Walmart, they're trying to, there's a ban the box. They're trying to actually recruit people with criminal histories, people who've served their time. So when it comes to criminal justice reform, it's, it's so broad. There's police reform and defunding the police, and then there's mass incarceration reform. What we found is that a lot of these corporations are investing their money in groups like Equal Justice Initiative, which is more focused on the broader mass incarceration reform versus defunding the police, which we shouldn't be surprised because defunding the police is a much more um, controversial subject. Tracy Jan is a race and economics reporter at The Washington Post. Tracy, thank you so much for being on Apple News today. Thank you, Duarte. Leaded gas is finally gone. It's been linked to all sorts of problems, which is why the U.S. banned it for passenger cars in the mid-1990s. But the rest of the world was not as quick to end production of this toxic fuel. The UN Environment Program says Algeria was the last holdout. In July, the North African country used up the last of its stockpile of leaded gas. NPR looked into why it took so long for the whole world to phase it out and what we can learn from this effort. Leaded gas does major damage to the environment and to people's health. It moves easily from engines to air, water and soil, and it's especially dangerous to children. Exposure can cause heart disease and cancer. 
It's also linked to lower IQs and higher violent crime rates. The UN estimates more than a million annual premature deaths will be prevented by the phase-out of leaded gas. Lead was originally added to gasoline as a cheap way to improve engine performance. Many countries largely phased it out during the last century, but there were several holdouts. The UN says conflict kept places like Afghanistan and Iraq from making the switch, and corruption was a factor in some countries. The chemical industry was reportedly bribing governments to keep lead going. It took a UN campaign to get the last few countries over the edge. And the tough part was convincing people who had only ever used leaded fuels to give up the lower price tag and switch to unleaded. A UN official from the campaign says it's a sign that bad environmental habits can be changed. Winning the fight against leaded gas may be reason to hope it's possible to create a future with greener transportation options, which don't need any gas at all. This has not been a great season for the New York Mets. After a run on top of the National League East, they lost a lot of games in August. Mets fans are used to the disappointment, but this fall from the top was particularly brutal. So they've been letting that frustration out. Mets fans have been booing their own team. And this hasn't been sitting too well with some players. After the Mets started winning, a few members celebrated by giving a thumbs down to the crowd. Player Javier Baez was asked about it over the weekend, and he told the press, yeah, it was a message to the fans. Stop booing. They got to be better. You know, I, I play for the fans and I love the fans, but, you know, if, if they're going to do that, they, they just put in more pressures on the team. And, and that's, not, that's not what we want. Let's just say Baez's comments didn't go over well with the fans. Hannah Kaiser wrote about this for Yahoo Sports, and she doesn't take the side of the fans, not exactly. She thinks booing your team is, you know, kind of a bummer. But she says that guys like Baez, athletes who make big money, they've got to take this kind of stuff in stride. Baez said sorry before yesterday's doubleheader against the Marlins. At first, fans didn't seem open to an apology. Looking at the crowd, you could see more than a few thumbs down. But after a rough start... By the ninth inning, the Mets were turning things around. And then... Turn those folks around! Javi Baez races home with a winning run! And the Mets win it 6-5! to five. The weekend of bad blood was erased in a heartbeat. Fans at City Field chanted, Javi Baez, Javi Baez, and just like that. All seemed to be forgiven. For now. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. 